Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty and end time events. In this special episode on COVID 19, we have Dr. Nicholas Miller. Dr. Miller, can you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Uh, sure, yes. Uh, I am um, have current responsibilities split between the Seventh day Adventist Seminary at Andrews University. I'm a professor in the church history department there. I uh, have my PhD in American religious and legal history, um, focusing on issues of church and state. And the other half of my time I spend as legal counsel and public affairs and religious liberty director for the Lake Union Conference. And I have a background in law, I have a law degree, and I practiced for um, a dozen years before I went into academia. And uh, so I still keep both parts of that of, of my life going in that way and uh, uh, enjoy it very much. That seems like a lot of years in school, sir. <laughs> Probably too much. Now, there's some people that are fearful that the COVID-19 virus is a precursor prophetically to a national Sunday law. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think we have to be careful about this. Um, we need to recognize where the government has legitimate concerns and interests in the health and safety of its population. At the same time, we can see that measures that are being put into place during this time of crisis uh, could be used in the future for improper purposes. And um, you may uh, have seen a meme that I circulated on Facebook uh, where I wrote that uh, closing churches to stop coronavirus isn't Revelation 13, it's Leviticus 13. So act like 1 Corinthians 13 till Romans 13 runs its course. Uh, all those 13s in there is a good way to, to remember this. Uh, but my basic point is that while we do believe in the future that the government will behave inappropriately in regards to religion and religious worship, that right now anyway, what's happening is more like what the Bible talks about in Leviticus 13, which makes allowance for people to be quarantined if they are carrying some communicable disease or the plague or leprosy. And that seems to be where we are now. Now, your point on COVID-13 not being Revelation 13, it's Leviticus 13, so act like 1 Corinthians 13 until Romans 13 stays its course, was posted on your Facebook page as a viral meme. Now, can you expound more on that viral meme that you shared? <laughs> sure. So, um, the Leviticus describes the government's role in, in quarantining and keeping people healthy and safe. Um, and so my proposal that we have to act like 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, of course, the famous chapter on love and treating each other and our neighbors with love. And that would mean that we would want to act in ways that don't harm others, but help others. And it's been a little sad to see a number of Christian churches sort of insisting on their rights to worship and gather in violation of these uh, state laws that have been put down. Laws that I might add that don't target religion, that aren't discriminatory towards either religion generally or religious minorities, but apply to everyone. They apply to secular meetings and social meetings and political meetings and concerts. So religion just isn't being targeted now. It's just part of the group 
of activities that is needing to be at least temporarily suspended for the public health. And most of us, if we get COVID-19, aren't going to die. Um, but there's a small group that will, the vulnerable, the elderly, those with underlying health conditions. And if we were really practicing 1 Corinthians 13, we wouldn't be insisting on our so-called rights of uh, gathering to worship when we realized that those actions would actually threaten the lives of the vulnerable among us. And there have been a number of churches that have insisted on opening despite the regulations, and people have literally died. Dozens of people have contracted uh, uh, COVID-19 in particular churches, and, and several have died. So 1 Corinthians 13 sets out the law and the principle of love, love towards our fellow members, towards our neighborhood and our community. And insofar as our gathering together will threaten that, then we're not acting in love, is, is my view. Um, and it really only becomes Revelation 13 when either the government targets religious minorities for uh, discriminatory treatment, treating certain religions worse than others, or begins to impose religious practices on the community. But neither of those things have happened yet. And my reference to Romans 13 is um, that government has this role, the God-ordained role, of carrying out protection and upholding the good in the community and punishing the evil. And insofar as keeping people alive and healthy is a good, um, in restricting our gatherings, the government is actually acting as a servant of God. Um, it seems a strange thing to say, uh, acting as a servant of God to restrict worship. But if you think about it, the government really isn't restricting worship. Uh, churches are free to worship online. Uh, my own church, I was part of a small crew that helped lead a Sabbath school discussion and music for the last couple of weeks. And we had worship. People just had to worship from their homes. So it, it doesn't become problematic, in my view, until worship itself is stopped or certain religious groups, religious minorities are treated differently uh, than everyone else. That's rather what Revelation 13 is talking about. And at this stage, anyway, I think the government is, for the most part, there may be some exceptions, and in fact, the mayor of New York just threatened some churches that if they don't close down, he will close them down permanently. Well, I think that's going too far, and it's beginning to smack a little bit of uh, Revelation 13. But it was just a threat. He's received a lot of criticism for it, and he certainly hasn't implemented it. But we need to keep our eyes on abuses that will almost certainly arise in the near future. Now, piggybacking on that question, what are your thoughts on a recent article where a pastor in Florida was arrested while still having a church service for a thousand-member congregation? Is that a violation of our religious rights? Well, that's a great question. And um, it illustrates the point that no right in the Constitution is absolute, right? To take the extreme example, if you had a cult that believed in human sacrifice, um, we wouldn't allow them to operate even though they were making a religious claim. Uh, their religious claim and rights would infringe the rights of other citizens to stay alive. Now, obviously in Florida, this is a less extreme case. It's not about human sacrifice. And yet the actions of that pastor 
are in a very real way jeopardizing the lives and health of, uh, of his community, of his um, members. Uh, this isn't speculation. Already, a number of churches that met, not necessarily in defiance of the, of the laws, but just as the laws were being implemented, um, have had dozens of people come down with the infection and, and, and several churches with more than one person dying. So this isn't speculative. This isn't about something that maybe could, might happen in the future. It's happening around us. And so for pastors to act uh, with presumption, uh, it's presumption rather than faith, and uh, they're being given civil penalties is not because of their spiritual actions. It's because of their actions in the temporal sphere that are having very real temporal consequences on their fellow citizens. So, no, I, I don't think that his First Amendment rights have been violated because the government has a sufficiently compelling, what we call compelling government interest in the life and health of, uh, of its citizens to prevent that from happening. Now, I have a personal connection to this question. In South Korea, there was a woman that was part of a French religious group that was infected with COVID-19, that attended a church service and was identified as a super spreader that infected a thousand member congregation with COVID-19, which in turn spread the virus to almost the entire city of Daegu, a major city in South Korea. Because of this, the South Korean government confiscated the membership records of this gathering, of this religious group, and tracked down every church member to make sure that they were quarantined and receive proper treatment. Now, I think of this prophetically in Great Controversy, page 589 and 590, where inspiration states that, that diseases and natural disasters will become more frequent and disastrous, and that God's people will be blamed for these calamities. Hypothetically, if a Seventh-day Adventist was a super spreader, would that invite persecution prematurely? <laughs> well, I mean, yes, it would invite persecution, but it would not be unjustified persecution, at least if there were people who were intentionally, I don't think this, in this situation in South Korea, I don't think you're claiming that this woman intentionally spread the virus. She was carrying out her church leadership role or whatever it was, and she happened to be infected. And um, so, you know, insofar as she was endangering people in the temporal sphere, look, this goes all the way back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther had this doctrine of the two kingdoms. And uh, there was the temporal kingdom, which related to the things of this world, uh, life and health and eating and drinking. And then there's the spiritual kingdom relating to our uh, religious beliefs, our worship of God. And he was clear, especially in the early days of his ministry, that the civil government had jurisdiction over the temporal sphere and not the spiritual sphere. Now, this COVID-19 virus and its spread is very much part of the temporal world. And I'm pretty sure that Martin Luther and our own pioneers and Ellen White uh, would see the need for us to obey civil authorities in responding to this temporal threat. And if one of our members just began spreading this widely and foolishly tried to organize meetings in violation of quarantine laws, there simply wouldn't be a meaningful religious liberty defense. You know, it's, and it's not as though we have to guess about this. You've heard of the Spanish influenza outbreak in 1918. 
I'm sure. And of course, our church was around then. Now, Ellen White wasn't alive, but it was only two or three years after her death. And there were similar quarantines then. I've just been reading through some old uh, issues of the uh, Lake Union Herald. And it records in there in 1918 that our church schools and our churches had to close for periods of up to two months. Uh, couldn't have any meetings, couldn't attend school or church. And nobody that I can read in those articles and reports uh, made any claims that this was an infringement of our religious liberty, and none of them insisted on attending church. So, um, yeah, being a super spreader during this time, if you're acting in violation of, of state laws and regulations, it simply opens you up to the temporal oversight of the state and you don't really have a fair claim to a religious liberty defense. What is your opinion on how the South Korean government treated this French cult group? Yeah, and I think it, but I think it's a little unfair to call them a cult because a cult is, in fact, uh, usually used pejoratively by the majority to describe a minority religious group they don't like. And um, this group was demonized to a certain extent, and I, I actually read some of the group's postings themselves, and at least they claim to be cooperating with the government and uh, turning over their membership lists. And so it, it was hard to sort out uh, what was true versus the rumors and claims of their enemies. And that often happens, though, in a time of crisis, and religious minorities uh, bear the brunt and the burden. So we have to act especially carefully, being a religious minority ourselves, uh, that we don't unnecessarily provoke uh, prejudice and, un and displeasure. If a vaccine for COVID-19 was developed, could the government require everyone to take the COVID-19 vaccine? And if so, is it constitutional? So, good question, and maybe a relevant, very relevant question soon. At least the way it's been treated in the past, the government generally does not require or it, it, it cannot force people to take the vaccine I believe that probably would be unconstitutional. But the way it operates is that it says if you don't take the vaccine, then you can't send your children to school and you may not be able to go into um, office and uh, workspaces and work areas. So, and that would be constitutional. Um, that's the way it's operated in the past. So it's, it's a high standard for under the constitution it's a violation of bodily integrity and there's fifth amendment and 14th amendment issues involved but um it, it's rare that the government can compel someone to take something into their body occasionally the government can do it with uh, children of parents who are like not wanting there to be blood transfusion and the child will die the the state can step in um, and and take over and make those decisions. But for an adult, typically the state really can't insist on a medical procedure or a vaccine, but it can make your receiving that a condition of being able to go to school or into a public workplace. So that's usually the way it's handled. There's a famous quote by Benjamin Franklin where he once said, those who give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. How do you respond to this quote? Yeah, well, it's, you know, like you said, it's a famous one that I've always 
um, thought was very well stated and, uh, and agreed with. But I have to say, in this particular context, you know, it made me think twice, um, because here we are, certainly we're giving up some liberties, aren't we? And we're trying to stay safe from this coronavirus. I think probably we'd have to interrogate uh, Mr. Franklin over what an essential liberty was. And I think my earlier distinction where we haven't been forbidden from worshiping, I view worshiping as an essential uh, liberty. Um, we've just been prevented from worshiping in physical proximity to each other. So the essential liberty continues. I worshiped with my church members last week. I worship with my family. We worship in small groups. Uh, we can worship in larger groups online. But for a temporary period of time, sort of right to physical proximity, uh, because of some among us will die if we don't do that. So, you know, temporary safety is maybe not as strong a um, phrase as what's happening now, right? This, this isn't just about feeling safe. This is, in fact, providing for the continued life, at least of the vulnerable among us. So, yeah, I think that quote has its place, but I think it, it wouldn't be fair to use it in the present circumstances to describe our willingness to stay home from church to protect people's life and health. Switching gears, how politically involved should Seventh-day Adventists be? Well, that's a very general question, isn't it? Um, I do think that we are Christians and Adventists first, and that we are citizens second. And yet we are citizens, aren't we? Um, Christ himself, even when he lived under a time when he didn't have citizenship, uh, he lived under a essentially a, a, an empire, a dictatorship, um, he said that we had certain duties to God and certain duties to Caesar, and we should carry out both those sets of duties. And in a constitutional republic that we live in, um, we're not subjects any longer. We truly are citizens with a range of rights and responsibilities uh, that involve not just paying taxes, that's part of it as it was in Christ's day, uh, but also in choosing our leaders and choosing policies for our government. And um, our own pioneers didn't shy away from uh, getting involved in moral issues of their day, including who to vote for and what issues to, to support or oppose. They were very opposed and Ellen White very strongly against being involved in party politics, partisan politics, lining up with one party or another uh, promoting their candidates and promoting their issues across the board. Uh, this she said we should not do. So that's the line that I've always seen it, being involved in public issues that relate to questions of morality, justice, and fairness, but not signing up or becoming involved in the partisan side of politics. Though in practice, it's not always easy to entirely separate those two things. Now, there's been accusations from a far-right Adventist blog that the Religious Liberty Department of the NAD leans towards the left politically. How do you respond to this? Well, on some issues, they do lean towards the left politically. Um, I think we've been supportive of the separation of church and state, which tends to lean towards the left. 
We've been supportive of our members who are migrants and uh, immigrants' uh, rights. Um, that leans left. Uh, but we also lean right on other issues. Um, we tend to be pro-life in opposition to abortion, at least abortion on demand. We've uh, spoken out uh, on LGBT issues and protecting the religious freedom of churches and of Christian business persons uh, to have their views on sexuality respected and protected. Um, our stands on pornography and, uh, and, and prostitution and these issues are all right-wing issues. So, yes, uh, on some things we lean left, but on other things we lean right because we are taking our political philosophy, if you will, not from the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, but from what we consider to be our reading of Scripture. The same blog was highly critical on a social justice conference you helped organize at Andrews University. What is social justice to you, and to what extent should Seventh Avenue be involved in social justice? Well, that's a great question, because there's a lot of confusion surrounding this. And depending on how you define social justice, it can either be, I argue, a good thing, or certain versions of it certainly can be very bad and destructive. So... I do tend to continue to insist to use the term, and I'll try to explain why from a biblical perspective. So there are two or three kinds of justice, and a lot of people aren't familiar with this uh, uh, distinction, but it's pretty important. So there's what I might call punitive or restorative justice, the kind of justice you get in a court of law if you go to a, a criminal or a civil trial. Um, somebody's broken the law and hurt someone else, and now they're going to need to pay the penalty. It might be restorative in terms of you don't just go to jail or pay a fine to the state, but you may have to pay um, someone back some money, restore what you've taken and they've lost. And the Bible certainly supports that kind of justice. The Old Testament has a system where that is set up and uh, vindicated, uh, avenues for that to be vindicated are created. And so that's important. But there's another kind of justice uh, called distributive justice. And that asks the question, not has someone taken something from someone else, um, you know, infringed their right in this instance, but is the overall distribution of goods in society fair and equitable? There's a, um, an old uh, French saying that goes along the lines of, uh, it is forbidden to both the rich and the poor alike to sleep under the bridges at night, right? And the law equally forbids the rich and the poor from sleeping there. But the catch is the rich really don't need to sleep there. Only the poor need to sleep there. And so a system, you can have a very good system of um, restorative, uh, punitive and restorative justice and have that operate perfectly. But it may, if the playing field is very unequal to begin with, it may just perpetuate injustice and unfairness on a grand scale. And so the Bible had very, very many provisions, almost more provisions regarding distributive justice than restorative justice. But most Adventists really only think about and know about the uh, punitive or restorative justice side. 
the distributive justice side, Ellen White talks about it quite a bit, and it would relate to issue things like gleanings in the fields, right? Everyone's fields and orchards were open for the poor to come in and take what they needed to feed themselves. There were yearly tithes and offerings that would go to the widow and the poor and the, and the immigrant. Um, more famously, every seven years, all debts would be forgiven in society. So the poor uh, who were indebted would not be in debt forever. There were also, of course, uh, slaves were uh, set free as well. Uh, and then every 49 years, you had a tremendous turnover in the property situation in Israel. There was the Jubilee. The 49th year would be the 7-7, and the following year would be the year of Jubilee. And not only were slaves freed, but all the land in Israel was redistributed back to the original family. Now, that's a tremendous intrusion of the government into private ownership and private property that property would have been land would have been sold and distributed to others but back it comes to the original owners and family and in effect you had the best if you will mixture of capitalism and socialism you still had people had to work they had to glean they had to go to the fields and get it for themselves uh, if their land came back to them they still had to work the land or sell it and start a business and yet Everyone was given an opportunity. Everyone was given a chance. If your parents blew your inheritance and lost the land, it would come back to you sometime before you died, and you would have a chance to begin again. And all of these were great examples of what we would call this distributive justice. And really, the modern synonym for distributive justice is social justice, trying to make the um, systems of our society fairer and better for everyone. And the Old Testament prophets talked about that continuously. Um, Ellen White quotes these laws from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, about the lands being restored and the gleaning and the tithing and the years of forgiveness. And she says, if these principles were applied today, how much better and happier would nations be? The gap between the rich and the poor and the tensions that exist between the two would be far, far less. So that, in a nutshell, for me, is how a Christian can think about proper kinds of social justice. Um, and, of course, there's far left-wing kinds of it that have to do with political correctness and wokeness and, and socialism. And those things tend to be based on a materialistic worldview and, and is not something the Christian can embrace. But if you make that distinction and define social justice properly, I think it actually becomes an important part of understanding the gospel. Should the churches advocate the government to promote this or should the churches do this by themselves outside of government? Well, I think that we can do some of both. Um, we certainly should have churches that are fair and that share and that's part of what ADRA is about. It's part of what our community services is about. It's part of what we do voluntarily um, as church members and as churches. But we're also citizens of the state. And there's simply no way that the church can itself voluntarily and privately bring uh, social justice to its larger community. And I don't think the churches themselves should lead out in political programs. It's always struck me that Ellen White, you know, she 
wrote this up in Patriarchs and Prophets, and she talks about how nations would be much happier if they followed these principles. So she herself was advocating uh, for these efforts. And, um, you know, so would it be strange if we as citizens continued and picked up her mantle in doing this ourselves? Now, you have spoken against Christian nationalism in your Facebook posts. Do you believe prophetically they are what Ellen White describes as apostate Protestants that Seventh-day Adventists should be wary of? Well, I think that they are in danger very much of heading that direction, aren't they? Um, I think that when Ellen White talks about apostate Protestantism, when it's fully apostate, it seeks to impose its religious beliefs and practices on others. Now, we haven't seen that yet, in my view. Uh, that still lies in the future. But you can see with the political involvement that many on the religious right are taking, their influence at the highest levels of government, their desire, perhaps, to um, send government resources and funds in, in their direction is certainly part of taking down that separation of church and state, the Establishment Clause, part of the First Amendment, that will, I think, in short order, lead to this same group, or at least many of them, in wanting to pass positive Christian laws to impose on their fellow citizens. So, not yet, but there are strong signs that it's, this is headed in the very direction that Ellen White was pointing. Now, the current presidential administration, one of their major talking points is the promotion of religious liberty. Do you believe that the current administration protects religious liberties? Well, that's a, a tricky question. The answer is yes in half. And uh, for that, perhaps we need to talk about our First Amendment a little bit. I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that we have not one, but two clauses regarding religion and the relationship of religion to government. Um, it, uh, it, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we have two clauses, one preventing the establishment of religion, call that the Establishment Clause, and the second prohibiting um, a limitation on the free exercise of religion. Uh, we call it the Free Exercise Clause. So in short, one clause says the government cannot promote or establish or endorse one religion over another. Um, that would be an establishment of religion. Uh, and on the other hand, it can't pass laws that will infringe the uh, rights and activities of religious individuals and people. Now, earlier we discussed this isn't an absolute right, so it's not, again, that the government can't do things that might cause you to vary your religious services at times and places um, if they have a compelling interest to protect the government and the, the health and safety of its citizens. But by and large, it just needs to stay out of religion and not promote it. And um, the judges that have been put on the Supreme Court over the last two or three years take a hugely robust view of the free exercise clause. Religion should be free to do whatever it wants and government shouldn't intervene with it. But many of us believe that they do so or have a philosophy that will do so 
at the expense of the Establishment Clause. You can see how the two clauses might be in tension. You allow religions to do lots of things and you give them a lot of power and soon they can come creeping into government. And if you interpret the Establishment Clause very narrowly or weakly, soon the Free Exercise Clause can overcome and almost abolish the Establishment Clause. And I'm afraid in the past we've gone the other direction where the separation, the Establishment Clause has almost been used to undermine the free exercise of religion under some democratic administrations. We've had more of that challenge. Um, during the Obama years, the LGBT crusade began to infringe and undermine uh, religious conscience and conviction in the, in the business and the, and the public square. But now I would say we are uh, facing more of the other extreme where free exercise is being allowed. And free exercise is often confused in some people's mind with the right of Christians to exercise their religion, but they very much want Muslims and Hindus and others kept on the margins and on the periphery. So that's where we are with the Supreme Court. I think that would be a fair way of, of putting it at this point. Uh, when our president was elected, he didn't say, I'm going to restore religion to its influence in this country. He said, I'm going to restore Christianity to its position of influence in this country. And really, he was talking about um, evangelical mainstream Christianity and not some other versions of it. Because you may recall in his campaign, he was quite uh, dismissive and ridiculing of Ben Carson's Seventh-day Adventist identity and background. So do you think the current administration shows favoritism towards Protestant Christians? Well, I think it has grown to be different over time. Uh, 100, 150 years ago, I would say we were more in the mainstream of what I would call dissenting separatist Protestantism, uh, shared by the American Baptists, and the Christian Connection, other groups that came out of the Second Great Awakening, had a strong sense of, of both clauses. I would say we were, had a strong sense of the importance of separation of church and state, but that that wasn't to be used to infringe on religious freedom. We, we had a strong sense of the robustness of both the free exercise and the establishment clause. And I think we still maintain that to some degree, whereas many evangelical Christians have come to believe that the establishment clause and the separation of church and state is really a kind of left-wing fixation that is perhaps found in the Russian constitution, but not the American constitution, and uh, have um, discarded it almost altogether. And uh, I think because of our prophetic perspective and because of the great controversy, Adventists have sometimes a better sense of the importance of both clauses and of keeping them in balance and harmony. What can Seventh-day Adventists do to be more involved in religious liberty? Well, that's a very good question, and it's one I've been asking for the last several years, ever since I became the PARL director for my union. Now, PARL stands for Public Affairs and Religious Liberty, and it's been something of a mission of mine to recapture the breadth of what public affairs and religious liberty is about. All too often as I was growing up, religious liberty came to be mean only 
Sunday laws and the coming of Sunday laws, and we needed to be involved in religious liberty to stop Sunday laws. And Sunday laws never came along. <laughs> and so interest in religious liberty kind of waned, and it was a marginal uh, pursuit for a number of years. And um, as I began to study the history of our pioneers, and I realized their breadth of involvement in public affairs issues, they were involved in slavery ab abolition, helping free uh, uh, runaway slaves, helping end slavery. They were involved in temperance reform, not just persuading people not to drink, but actually outlawing the sale and use of alcohol, uh, not to make people spiritually better, but to protect the lives and health and resources of, uh, of wives and children and to protect people from being beaten in society by drunken men. And we had a much more robust sense that public affairs uh, would involve moral convictions, not just taken from the Bible, but taken from what we call the book of nature, uh, the realm of moral philosophy that Ellen White told us to study. And so it was this uh, sense of public affairs uniting with religious liberty that I view as important for Adventists to make the religious liberty ministry relevant again to our young people. Um, again, we can talk about Sunday laws. A, a great historical example of this is Adventists in Germany during the war, the Second World War. They were looking for Sunday laws. They were looking for Protestant popular and Catholic churches to unite against them with Sunday laws. But that didn't happen. What did happen? A right-wing fascist dictator arose who was a vegetarian, who didn't drink alcohol, who had good things to say about the family unit, and who gave uh, Adventist soldiers Saturday mornings off to attend church. So what was there to protest against? And unfortunately, the vast majority of Adventists stayed quiet and went along and even supported the activities of the, of the National Socialist government in Germany. They had narrowed religious liberty down to one single issue, that of Sabbath and Sunday, and they had lost sight of the larger public affairs and religious liberty model, this question of looking at moral issues in the public square and seeing that, in fact, Christians have a duty to oppose injustice, not just in the form of Sunday laws, but wherever the government is mistreating people and abusing them and making decisions about their lives that should only be made by God, and if we had understood that, we would have seen in the outrageous persecution and arbitrary and vicious treatment of the Jews, we would have seen a violation of the principles that are involved in Sunday laws. And we would have been far more involved in helping the Jews and in opposing this sort of mistreatment. And I think today, as we look at our country and the way that some of our leaders speak about Muslims and their religion or immigrants and their supposed criminality, where we see uh, strong uh, attacking and criticizing the weak, uh, that we would find a voice to speak up on biblical principles of justice and fairness. The Bible has so much to say about the fair treatment of widows, of the alien, of the immigrant, uh, of those that believe differently religiously from us. 
if you look at the life of Christ and the number of stories he told where the favorable characters were those not of Jewish faith or not of Jewish ethnicity, whether it be the Samaritan or the centurion, the Roman, the, the Greek, the Syrophoenician, he went out of his way to praise their faith and hold them up as examples that, um, that we could learn from. And while he didn't involve himself in partisan politics, and neither should we, he certainly was involved in the polis, the public square of his day, making profound arguments through parable and through action um, about how all humanity should be treated fairly and equally and justly. And that's what I would hope for Adventists. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your valuable time in joining us in this podcast. I know your time is valuable. And before we close, can you say a word of prayer for us? I would be delighted to, yeah. Dear Heavenly Father, we just appreciate the truths of your word that can cast a light on the path ahead of us. Uh, we live in challenging times, even a time of crisis, as we see this coronavirus uh, begin to blanket our land and approach even our own families. We pray and we claim your promises of protection and of safety. We know that um, some of our friends and family, the Adventists, will almost undoubtedly get this plague. Sometimes your protections are shown in eternity rather than in temporality. But we have faith in you and we ask for your guidance and your wisdom as we seek to navigate these tricky questions of Christian citizenship and citizenship in the, in the church and citizenship in the state and how we can glorify your name and how we can best bear witness um, by cooperating with the government when it's appropriate, but by having the courage to stand up and speak out when it goes too far. Give us your grace and your love as we seek to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.